as I was uh, sitting here, I was, um, I was just uh, agreeing with the teachings. Because <laughs> I could see that um, uh, it made me uh, almost laugh, smile, certainly. It was like sitting here in, fr- in front of uh, more or less a hundred people, knowing that one has to speak for about an hour, you know, if there's any pro- uh, projection in the future, you know, like, so you have to speak, do you remember you have to speak for one, about one hour? You know, it's, it's, it gets really like, uh, it's, it, it's, it's a stressful situation to be in. <laughs> you know, it's not like nobody else is going to help me, even these guys, they, they, don't even, they don't even sit on stage, you know, like I'm on my own. And, uh, but then if I remember the practice, you know, of like, so what's happening? Well, you know, I'm just, I'm really just sitting. There's, there's nothing about it. It's just a body sitting and there's pressure in the butt, uh, like there is when I sit there without the microphone, you know, like it's, uh, there's actually nothing much happening. But as soon as I bring the ideas about the future, you know, 59 minutes. <laughs> It's huge, but I actually don't have to, uh, you know, it's not possible to do 59 or 60 minutes of something, it's just now, you know, just here now. And I can see what made me smile, I was like, wow, these teachings, they're true. <laughs> if I come back to just what's here, then for me the, the stress goes way down, you know, and and not only this, but I'm really there, you know, which is a, it's not a bad place to be, you know, with being here with you like this. So now I'm talking to you, and like the 60 minutes of talking, they're about here in my experience. So I, I have to look this way now <laughs> for a few minutes. I have to talk to you like, there's just us, just us. And the 60 minutes. <laughs> Um, and it's very interesting because really I did not plan that. Did not. I was just, I was really honestly, this was what was happening inside of me. And then I wanted to talk, start the talk with this, uh, what I want to talk about is th- this here. So this is from the sutras. And I read this sometimes, some time ago and I really liked uh, the simplicity of, of it, I'll, I'll point to the simplicity. There's many words there, but there's just two little ideas that I, I, that I think talk a lot about practice. And so this, uh, from the sutra, it says here, Suspense. <laughs> It says here, there is the case where an untaught, ordinary person who has no regard for noble ones and is unskilled and undisciplined in their dharma does not understand what things are fit for attention and what things are unfit for attention. Since that is so, they attend to those things unfit for attention, 
and does not attend to those things fit for attention. What I liked in that quote was just the simplicity of like kind of fit for attention or unfit for attention. I like when things are simple like this, you know, and and when I uh, read this, I saw kind of all the years of practice behind me and the, I mean, the years of life basically and seeing like, wow, it's really been a lot about clarifying this, what was fit for attention and what was unfit for attention. And before I ran into these teachings, there was not much clarity about this. It's mainly in these teachings that I learned what was fit for attention and what was unfit for attention. The example, an example would be just what I described that happened here. So I'm sitting here, and if I give my attention to something that is unfit for attention, like you remember you have to talk for a whole hour. A whole hour is a long time when you're alone in front of a hundred people. You know that? So giving my attention to these thoughts, would you say it would be unfit or fit for attention? Unfit, thank you. Who got the right answer? <laughs> you get a private interview. <laughs> and so, and then suddenly there was this idea that, oh, what's actually happening now? Oh, there is sitting here. There is the warmth of the feet, the pressure on the on the butt. There is the there's the, oh, there's a little fear. Oh, I didn't know that. In the unfit for attention, there was really the reality that I had to talk and I better do this well and you didn't prepare as much. You, you never knew how to prepare and you, you know, your thing about spontaneity is not going to work. You know? <laughs> so that's the only... But before I wouldn't know, it would, be, it would have appeared to me that I had to take care of that. That was where to put the attention on the fact that uh, bad... Uh, preparer for talks and that uh, I'll pay for it and you know <laughs> and now suddenly because of the teachings that I received as an alternative I would never have thought to feel my feet before it would not have been an option for me and suddenly there's the f- just feeling the feet there and by feeling the feet feeling the breath and by feeling the breath feeling the chest and then noticing oh there's fear here oh my love you're a little fearful you know and also like, oh, actually there's nothing happening. There's just sitting here, you know. So to me it's this move, movement from giving attention to what is unfit for attention and learning what is fit for attention and then, you know, acting on it, you know. And so it said in the teaching that when one gives attention to what is unfit for attention, unarisen craving will arise or increase if it's already there. So, you know, I could be here and uh, start to think like, oh, I could have chosen to do something else. You know, I could... I mean, it's, a lo- it's expensive, this... Thing, you know, like one could have gone south, you know. It would be so good, like right now, especially it's so cold, you know, like, and so one giving attention to this, not 
realizing what is happening, that there's the production of thoughts, fit for attention, you know, oh, there are th images being produced, you know. I could, one could get caught in this and, you know, find their self in a car driving away, you know, driving away from wisdom, you know. And so, unarisen, when one gives attention to what is unfit for attention, uh, unarisen craving will arise or increase. And another one here is unarisen becoming will arise or increase. You know this, are you my mom? Are you my mom? You know this, this that Catherine was describing yesterday, unattended to, this will only increase. You, and you, and here, and here, maybe here, and you know, it would, it would, uh, but suddenly hearing about the teaching, suddenly there's a, oh, what's actually happening? What is fit for attention? Oh, there's a lack, there's a looking for completion. And then, oh, my love, looking for completion is difficult. And you see, it, in a way, it's, it's, it seems easy to switch from one to the other when one has the information about what is fit for attention. And so it says that when one attends to what is unfit, and sometimes I, I, I think maybe it's not more so what is unfit for attention, but the ways to be atten attentive, maybe the what to be attentive to, or the ways to be attentive, but basically what will happen is that there will be more wanting of another reality than the reality is, is, that is there, more resistance to the reality uh, than the resistance that is already there, uh, more dejection, more l less energy to actually be in reality. Uh, and name, naming the list of five hindrances here, if you if you're familiar with that list, you know. Mm -hmm. Or I'll get so agitated that I won't actually be able to connect with reality. The the production of agitation, yeah, and the production of doubt. Doubt. You know why? Why? Why would I? You know. What 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 is fit for attention? What is unfit? You know, why everything's going wrong? You know, and so when uh, we don't know how to bring our attention, we are cultivating the difficult mind states. That's what it says. And by learning what is fit for our attention or how to be attentive, we're. Uh, it says here, unarisen tendencies difficult tendencies of mine uh, won't arise or they'll be abandoned. And so in this practice, that's what we learn to do, to attend in a way that reduces stress, reduces the, you know, the looking to fill the lack or the agitation. It, it leads in a different direction, in the, in the direction of more calm, acceptance, balance, curiosity about what is actually happening, not what could have happened or should have happened, but yeah. So that's, that's what we're learning here. So I don't know if I'm teaching much of anything because maybe we all know this, but maybe what I want to, why I'm talking about this is because I... I'm grateful for that. 
I'm grateful that I'm clarifying this in my life. When I look at the last uh, years of practice, uh, this is basically what I've been doing. It even touches me to say that, but Pascal, it was time well spent. It was time really well spent. You clarified what is fit for attention and what is unfit for attention. When before you would be spend a lot of time, how is Pascal perceived and what Pascal will get and will he get it and what Pascal could have been or should have been or the better version of Pascal or this whole thing, suddenly it's like, oh, that's not so much fit for attention. What is fit for attention is what's the quality of the heart-mind here? What's the experience of embodiment here? Yeah, I think that I want to name this movement from, even though we might all know that by now, I want to name it because I, yeah, I do think there's nothing more important than that. Maybe I'll bring another quote and see if I can fit this in. So that's another thing I read a few years uh, ago that had a very strong imp- uh, imp- left impact, impression on me. Whatever person is, that's for like, from like a thousand or even more, a thousand years old, so you'll have to adapt to modern life maybe, but whatever person is greedy for fields or property, gold or cow or horses, relations or various objects of desire, that's the moment here where you pay attention. (laughs) Whatever person is greedy for fields, property, gold, cows or horses, relations, various objects of desire, the powerless overpowers them. Trouble press them down. Does unease come to them like water water in a broken boat? The powerless overpower them. When I use my attention in a way that is unfit for attention or unfit for somebody who is interested in freedom of heart-mind, in release of the heart, in, you know, when I and I attend to things, uh, let's say, with the wanting, I need to get that, I need to get this, suddenly the powerless overpowers me. I like that it starts with the powerless. Because when I'm in, my attention is, has been caught in an unfit way, suddenly I don't even know that it's powerless. I think it's extremely powerful. That person recognizing my presence in the room, or that, you know, I don't know what, you know, that jacket. (laughs) You don't understand. That is the jacket. (laughs) Or, I don't know, the apple. Not the other one. There, this one. (laughs) They took it. They took the apple. I have to wait another 24 hours to know if there's going to be another 5.30 or 5 o'clock apple, you know. 
the place to walk, the, you know, it's, you know, the, even I, will I dare say like the spacious heart, this is what I need, my heart is tight right now, I need the spacious heart, you know, to me it all points to, to, to this, when I read the powerless overpower me, I really put a lot into this thing that is not there with unfit attention. Yeah? There's a story I, you know, I traveled from retreat to retreat here and there and there's a few stories that I, I tell and, and uh, I like that one because it's kind of cute but it, it sh- to me it shows this. Is, uh, and a few years back I, had to, um, I was invited to teach a retreat on, retreat on Samish Island in the west coast, Washington, May, beautiful, um, and uh, there was, uh, when I got to the little island, the rhododendrons were in bloom, and they were amazing rhododendrons, and uh, in Quebec, the rhododendrons, they, uh, they really aspire to live. <laughs> <laughs> But it's it's not an easy thing for them, <laughs> and so I didn't even know. Like I had friends who had the rhododendron, and and they took really good care of it. But it was kind of a hopeless case for me. Like. <laughs> but anyway, I get there and these these things, and I noticed that I was sitting in the meditation hall with the the other practitioners, and I was thinking like, you know, in a few minutes, it's going to be walking, the rhododendrons, <laughs> you know, and. Anyway, you know, it got to a point where I was like, oh, you know, the powerless has overpowered me. You know, like my mind has been, you know, I've, like I'm, I'm, and I, I hadn't seen this, you know, that the, suddenly I was under the power, the spell of the rhododendrons. <laughs> you know? So it's, it's, a, it's cute, but, um, but you weren't there. It was a very difficult situation <laughs> to be in. <laughs> But um, it made me see how I could do this with another human being, you know. It was just one of the all beings. But suddenly that human being, you know, has complete power over my worth and my unworthiness or my, you know, well, the fact that I'm welcome on earth or not, you know. They have the power to decide, you know. And so... That's just an, another example of how that shows, you know, how my attention, when it's unfit, un, uh, it's not, uh, you know, I'm maybe not wearing the Dharma lenses, you know, how I can be fooled and create uh, stress for myself, yeah. And so when my attention is kind of superficial, ordinary, the possibility of it being unfit are much, much, much greater. And, so, and, and here, I've, I notice this here and in my life, that as soon as I go to a habitual attention, habitual hab, hab, habits of mine, old habits can easily come back, you know. And that when my attention is of a different quality, this ex- extra 
ordinary attention. I don't want to make it extraordinary attention. I want just extraordinary. Do you see the difference? Just a little value added there. I can see that uh, it gives me access to remember uh, the wisdom. Uh, I have access to my wisdom, to my values, for one thing. When my attention is a little superficial, I can get uh, easily uh, impatient and a little rough, and I forget that I actually care about people and want to respect them, for example, you know, something like this, you know, or if I'm a little uh, superficially uh, attentive and there's really something that I want and I might actually act in a way that I'm going to get it, you know, that might not be exactly in line with, uh, I might, you know, tell a little lie, a little, uh, almost not a lie, you know, it's almost the truth, you know, but you know, and if I'm attentive, then I can remember, I can check in, I can see like, oh, what's the quality of this heart, you know? And often I see that the wisdom is available, even the shaky wisdom that I just heard Catherine or Yanai give last night, you know, with attention, I have access to this. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah. In the wake of this attention, also, I see the quality of being born, some of them. Catherine talked about last night, more uh, balance of heart-mind. Yeah. I value this so much these days, that when I do pay attention, like I was taught to, you know, like I was invited to, I can see that more and more the, there's the arising and the culture it's natural it's organic it's not my calm i don't do calm i don't i don't know how to do calm or balance you know but i know how to pay attention and by paying attention it seems like the door opens up to a little bit more calm you know and there's a synergy that happens the calm invites more attention the calm the balance of mind uh, make contentment arise oh is the fullness of reality. With my ordinary attention, I didn't know that. I just thought that's not much happening, you know. But when I calm down and become attentive, suddenly it's, it's a little richer, a little more texture, you know, the sensitivity again. And then I become curious. How amazing. And maybe now I want to bring another point here of what happens with this attention. Is... Uh, Slowly what happens with this uh, quality of attention that is a f- attention that is fit, to use that, uh, again, that expression from the beginning of the talk, you know the other, you might remember the other night I was talking about how with this attention, this presence, sustained careful presence we go from uh, we go from the conventional to the ultimate reality more to the more this movement to the universal yeah um, so it, it's again what I want to point to uh, when the attention is, uh, is a beautiful let's call it a beautiful attention I'll try that the beautiful attention in the way that I understand this is that it's going to start extracting the ultimate. 
from the conventional for the habitual reality. And I'm thinking of something specific, so you, you hang in there a little bit. Um, so I start from my ideas about things, my ideas about me, my ideas about the retreat, my ideas about people, situations in my life, and I become more attentive. So now I can start to feel the texture. Oh, the texture for me is wide range. It can be like, oh, this is pleasant, this is unpleasant. Before I didn't know that. I just knew that it should not happen. People should not do that. Now I'm like, oh, there's a sound. It's an unpleasant sound. So it's a whole other level of reality I'm entering. Yeah? It's the reality of what's really happening. So I start to notice the specificity of things. Oh, this is heard. This is sensed. This is thought. I'm clarifying this. So this is uh, soft. This is hard. This is, oh, this is blue. This is uh, subtle. This is not so subtle, you know? So everything, every phenomena that is known has specificities to it. And I, and I touch that. It's touched. It's, uh, my attention, in a way, we could say, becomes porous. So I really feel uh, the texture of joy or calm or the texture of this low kind of anxiety or the texture of this particular sadness that has sweetness to it or the, or the, the texture of the, the temperature, the texture of the wood, you know? So, so the world becomes suddenly more uh, three-dimensional or more... Uh, the sensitivity, yeah, in all kinds of ways. And now the, mo- the new movement that happens, the new things that starts to emerge, is that not only do I see, start to see the specific characteristics of every event, but I start to see the universal characteristics of every event. So again, some things are blue, others are red, some things are heard, others are seen. But what they have in common, and we're seeing this on this retreat more and more, is that they have the nature to arise and pass. Yeah? So, to me, when I start noticing this, this is a whole other field of discovery here, with my wise attention, we could call it. So it's not so much that it's blue, or that it's... uh, Rugged, or I don't have the all the beautiful range of vocabulary that I wish I had, you know. But <laughs> so this is not only smooth, but it's smooth. It's a passing smoothness. It's a passing ruggedness. It's a passing unpleasantness. It's a passing uh, unpleasantness. And so I'm entering that world of the universal characteristics of every event. Thoughts pass by, emotions pass by, sounds at any of the sense doors, you know, impressions pass by, views of myself pass by. I'm the best meditator, I'm the worst, I want to live here, let me out of here. You know, these impression passes, and I start to notice this. 
this, when I start to notice this, to me, I've noticed in my own practice and in the practice maybe of others, is that we're starting to enter the realm uh, of uh, uh, wisdom, insight there. It's, it gets more, it, we're in the field of, uh, that is the field of liberation in my understanding of this practice. I start to notice, wow, look at this, it comes, it goes, you know. And even uh, my opinions, you know, like, I agree with this, and then, whoops, later I don't agree with this anymore. I see this in a way, and I see this in another way. The perceptions are also passing, yeah? The world of uh, impermanence. And I was pointing to this the other night when I was talking about the, um, uh, the banana tree uh, trunk, or the plantain tree trunk. So there's this production, and suddenly I notice that, oh, actually, it falls flat, it disappears, you know, it, it bears its fruit, but then it ends also, yeah? And the Buddha has this series of images, and maybe I'll take a few minutes to visit them, that I really, were very, uh, these images that I love very much in my practice, they're very present. And so, again, moving from out, Without the practice, I have ideas about my body. This body is too, in my case, it's too thin. It's too thin. This body should be otherwise. I have ideas about the body. And then I start to pay attention. And then I feel like, oh, you know, there's a pulsation, there's vibration. And, oh, this is cold, this is warm, this is hard, this is soft, this is tense, this is contracted, this is expensive. But uh, suddenly, it appears also that it's dynamic. Across all this, what becomes more clear is that it's changing all the time. The hand is an idea, but the experience is very alive, very, it's a whole universe of movement in there. And the Buddha used the image of foam to describe the body. Like the foam, the ocean, or the river, always changing form. So he was pointing to the impermanence that I want to become aware in my practice, how this body is changing all the time. Yeah. When I'm sitting and then I stand up to do walking, if I'm there for it, I'll notice, wow, wow, it's a completely different experience of legs. Why did I call both legs or my leg? You know, one was like this thing like this, the other one is that thing like that. <laughs> yeah? So foam is the image. The image that the Buddha used for uh, the pleasant and unpleasant and neutral is, the, is a bubble. He's, he was talking about when it rains and there's a puddle, when the drop of water falls in the puddle, it makes this little bubble just for a moment. And so... When I become attentive, it goes from, uh, you know, my pleasure and you, I was having a good time and you ruined my pleasure, you know, or, you know, I, I go from owning the pleasure and my and protecting my pleasure and seeing it as something, you know, that people, something solid that people threaten, you know, like, and suddenly I'm sitting here and I'm becoming attentive and say, oh, 
wow, there's this little thing that happened in, at the ear door, and it's pleasant only for for a second, and then it's gone. And there's, the, you know, there's a, a pleasant thought, and it's followed by an unpleasant sensation. And even though I've had the sensation here that is unpleasant for several minutes, the moment that I think about an object of desire somewhere in my mind, if I'm very attentive, I might notice that the the unpleasantness has completely disappeared from my experience for a few seconds. What I thought, like, wow, it's been like solid rock in the leg for 20 minutes, I can suddenly realize that actually, no. It was not, there was no unpleasantness in the leg at all while I was having an opinion about the yogi in front of me. (laughs) It had just disappeared, and then suddenly it's there again, but it wasn't there for that second, you know? And so I'm kind of uh, clarifying the un, um, impermanent nature of pleasantness. And the, the Buddha used the, yeah, I just said it, the, the Buddha used the image of a, of a bubble, saying like, well, you know, it just... So this is this quality of attention, the fit, you know, what is fit for attention or the ways that we become attentive. And this is liberating to me to notice that, oh, I invest so much in my life into pleasantness, things being pleasant. But the more I look at it, the more it reveals its unstable nature. It's changing all the time. Do I really want to invest so much in pleasantness? I don't even have to think about this. This is by close contact with the unstable nature of pleasant and unpleasant that there's this awakening, like, wow, not worthy of putting all my eggs in that basket. Yeah? And so it's seeing the impermanent nature of uh, even the feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant. And there's another, there's three characteristics that I want to talk about that are universal to every experience heard, smelt, tasted, thought, felt in any way you want, I don't care things have in common that they're impermanent and that they're not really mine we talked about this when I see the bubble of pleasantness appear and disappear like this it starts to sink in that oh, it's not mine, it just is known and disappears can't make it happen exactly can't control it you know so maybe maybe you're following me there <clears throat> that's another of the characteristics and also they're all linked together but the other one is that it's actually not satisfying it's like the pleasantness is by close contact with it I notice that it cannot satisfy deeply can't believe this. I really thought it could satisfy me completely. But on a closer look, I can see that moments of pleasantness can't satisfy me completely. 2,600 years ago, there's a a beautiful little exchange between a a nun and a monk. uh, And they used to be married, actually, these two. And at some point, the husband came home and he said, I heard this guy talk, you know, and he, I just want to follow him. 
like there's something he's talking about, some things he's teaching. I just, I, you can have everything. I really, I have to follow this guy. It's like, yeah, well, me too then. I, you know, if you think it's worthy. And they both went to follow the Buddha. They became monks and nuns. And she actually was a much better practitioner than he was. <laughs> and at some point, uh, a, he asks her in one of the conversations, he asks her, uh, what, what's, the, what's, what's the download about pleasant and unpleasant? You know, can you tell me something about it? And she said this very simple thing. She says, oh, you know, pleasant... I don't know if you noticed, honey pie. <laughs> no, she didn't call him like this at that point. <laughs> she said, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but uh, pleasantness, when it ends, it's unpleasant. <laughs> and unpleasant, when it ends, it's pleasant. <laughs> I thought it was a deep, you, you think it's funny. <laughs> I thought it was deep teaching. <laughs> that... They, con- they contain both in a way, you know? And suddenly it's like, why do I get so... My whole life is about, you know, wanting to accumulate pleasantness and running away from the unpleasant. And now you're telling me that they both contain the other? How interesting is that? You know, did I make a few mistakes about how I live my life, you know? And so by paying attention, we start to see these things. They start to appear, the impermanent nature, the incapacity to own, really, own and keep, you know, it's, oh, just passing by. The perception, how things appear to be, I think I named that, the mirage, yeah? That's the image that the Buddha used. So he's pointing in that image also, like in the other images, he's pointing to the impermanent nature of how it appears. And so by being attentive, I start to notice this more and more. Oh, perceptions are not reality. They're a passing impression on reality. Can I relax in the middle of that? And then the banner for the for mental formation. And the last image in this series of five images he uses is the consciousness, this thing that knows reality, this, this in, I want to call it this intelligence, this, this cognition of what's happening, what feels, the, what knows the sight, what, know, what is there for the hearing, what, is, what encounters the thoughts and ideas you know that he said this is the image he uses this, this is like a magic show it's kind of the illusion of uh, creates the illusion of self I hear I think I and by becoming more and more attentive on a retreat like this if we really slow down if we manage to sustain the attention we're going to start seeing that this, there's a discrete, is that the way you say it in English? Discrete arising of hearing. Discrete like, yeah, I'll try discrete. I'll see your faces after if it <laughs> seems to work or not. There's an arising of a sound and it disappears. 
And with the arising of the sound, there is the knowing of the sound. And both, or this event disappears, dies completely. And so, am I, I'm, am I really staying around? Because this whole experience, not just the sound, but the knowing also that I define as me, has disappeared. It's not there anymore. The moment when you came to sit tonight for this talk, that moment, not just the sitting down, the body going down, but the knowing of it, if you were there for it, of course, that's a requirement. <laughs> or just a minute ago, the sitting here, listening, this moment of knowing is unexistent anymore. But there's a way that without, with a superficial attention, it seems like it's me, I was here hearing the sounds, I was there sitting down, and now I'm here listening to Pascal, and it's me. But on a closer attention, what I discovered in my practice is that, wow, existence appears and disappears all the time. This, what I call Pascal, is, it, I have to make a kind of a, pirouette in French, a kind of a somersault of mind to actually put that thing that existed and is gone with that thing that is existing and gone now. You know, to put this all together and call it Pascal, I have to be, I have to, I have to create something in the mind. It's a, it's a conceiving. I have to conceive of a Pascal. I have to generate in my mind a story of a Pascal. I have to create something that I will call Pascal because the actual experience of it is that it's gone all the time. The Pascal that sat here to start the talk, that existence, where is it? It's with the Big Bang, you know, it's, it's just unexistent. And with very close attention, but you will agree with me probably that it needs a kind of a refined uh, attention here. I start to notice this. Wow. There's always death is constantly there. There's the death of this moment is is uh, this. It's the only thing that is happening is life and death all the time. That's not conventional reality. That's not the agreed upon uh, reality. That's a reality that is touched only when one is, becomes more quiet. Yeah. I remember I had. Um, one of my first, my first Dharma teacher was, he was a drama teacher. He had, he had, uh, he was under disguise, he had replaced a few letters around. <laughs> no, I don't teach Dharma, I teach drama. <laughs> I was like, oh, it was just to get people like me. I want drama. <laughs> I teach drama, but he was really teaching Dharma. And when we were um, at the, in the session of the, the, the you know, doing the workshops, the drama workshops, he was, that's the thing I've heard him say the most over the years, he was often saying, hey, and I mean, and I say that a lot as a teacher now, I borrowed it, I mean, I, and he would often say that, he would say, hey, we've never been here now before. That is a completely new experience. 
don't like it didn't say that but it sounded like don't be fooled you know don't think that it's just ordinary happiness uh, not happiness but ordinary uh, existence happening like life you know and we were there 20 minutes ago and in 20 minutes there'd be a break and you know I know all my assumptions about life you know and I ride on assumptions you know unchecked reality you know it's like slow down we've never been here in this body now before that's a completely new experience and every time he was saying this I was like wow I, I think I could kind of into it or touch it a little bit. It was intriguing to me. I never got tired of Okay, is he going to stop saying that now? You know, I was always like, oh, it's true, there's something about it, but I don't have quite access to it, you know. And now, with this attention that has more calm to it, that is more sustained, that has some kind of curiosity, not the, the opposite of uh, assumptions, you know, I know about reality. I know about this body, I know about being happy. I've been in this hall a week now. Like, you're not going to show me, uh, teach me something about this hall, you know. I know that cushion, you know. No, I've never been in this body now before. And in this way, I can notice the ephemeral nature of this reality, the newness that is there all the time. Am, am I am I talking about something that is of interest to you? Yeah, okay. that's a good thing. And so, and because it is impermanent and changing, it is disappearing all the time and new, the teaching says that it cannot totally satisfy this to me is extremely touching. It's, it seems like a bad news, but it's so funny that I agree now that it's actually liberating. Oh, it cannot totally satisfy this reality, the phenomena. Of, they can be pleasant, they can have richness to it, they can have depth to them, but they can't totally satisfy. That, and please do not believe me. We're here to check this out for ourselves, you know. But anyway, it says that because of his imp its impermanent nature, it can't really satisfy. And it's been, to me, I've seen how it's... Uh, I've checked it in uh, conventional reality a lot, you know, like, you know, somebody's inviting me to something, like a dinner of friends, let's say, you know. Friday night, or next Friday, or the 23rd, you know. And I really look forward to it, you know. And when I go there, I can see that there's the connection, there's the beauty, there's... But after I'm walking back home, and my problem is not solved, you know, I'm still looking for my mother, you know. Are you my mother, you know? And the more I notice this, the more I find it liberating, because, oh... I don't have to put false expectations on people and career and events and inner life, you know. I don't have to put false expectation anymore. It's not going to provide. I can actually relax and really meet the reality as it is.
So, yeah, so this movement from what is unfit for my attention to what is fit for my attention and the potential in that. I think that's maybe just what I wanted to point out. And maybe I won't be able to get into it, but I'll just name it anyway. Is to me the most, the more I become attentive, sensitive to specific, the specificity of things, <coughs> the more my heart opens or is available. And the more even that I touch on the, these universal characteristics of impermanence and not, cannot hold, cannot own anything really, and nothing completely does it, my heart opens even more. It's very intriguing to me that the contact with reality as it is has this effect of, instead of being falling into dejection, like, oh, no point. You would think, like my logical mind would think that, seeing these things will lead to dejection. Is that the right word? Like, it's not worth it, you know? And it's very intriguing to me that it actually doesn't do that at all when it's well done. It, it, it makes things appear precious and fragile. And it makes me want uh, other to, you know, gain that wisdom and, and find that ease or be well or I'm, I'm probably not going to say it well but it definitely brings a, compassion arises naturally from that wow things are so ephemeral I want to really take care of them things could av- easily not happen I want to take care of them uh, yeah I think I'll have to leave it at that you'll have to do the rest of the <laughs> of the work there for me. Okay. So let's see uh, what happens if we pay a little attention just now to the silence. What what will uh, become palpable? What will be noticed? May we we, um, clarify for ourselves what is worthy of our 
careful attention. And may that bring a deep peace inside of us. And may that also uh, be agent. Uh, may that make us agents of uh, goodness, I want to say. So that we can experience freedom and also... Uh, offer freedom and protection to all beings, no one excluded. Thank you for your, um, your attention and your practice. And the person who rings the bell can ring the bell at the time that the bell is supposed to be rung <laughs> for once. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.